0: And opinions of this broadcast are solely those of individual contributors or advertisers, as indicated.
1: Federal News Radio does not take responsibility for those statements or opinions and accepts no responsibility or liability for any inaccuracy, errors, or omissions reported during this program. This is the Business of Government Hour, a conversation about leadership and management with government executives and thought leaders who are truly changing the way government does business. I'm Michael Keegan, your host and leadership fellow at the IBM Center for the Business of Government. Semper Paratus, always ready, is far more than a motto. It goes to the core of the U.S. Coast Guard's mission. Today's complex maritime operating environment demands nothing less. What is the U.S. Coast Guard's strategic direction? How can the U.S. Coast Guard develop and sustain a mission-ready total force? And what is the U.S. Coast Guard doing to modernize its operations and infrastructure? I'll explore these questions and so much more with our very special guest, Admiral Carl Schultz, 26th Commandant of the U.S. Coast Guard. Admiral Schultz, welcome to the show. It's great to have you.
0: It's a pleasure to be here, Michael.
1: So, sir, let me ask you to give us a a brief overview of the rich history and mission of the U.S. Coast Guard.
0: Yeah, so, Michael, it's kind of an opportune question here on August 4th. We will celebrate the Coast Guard's 231st birthday. And, um, you know, we didn't start out at the U.S. Coast Guard, but if you sort of walk the hands of time back, um, then President George Washington, first President of the United States, obviously, was petitioned by the first Secretary of the Treasury, Alexander Hamilton, to, to create a service. And it was started as the Revenue Marine Service. It was tied to the, uh, the Tariff Act of 1790 and and that was tied to really preventing smuggling, enforcing terrorists, trade laws. It was in the aftermath of the Revolutionary War and there was war debts to be paid. So uh, Hamilton had this vision of a service that was out there doing those duties and um, petitioned the president. The first revenue marine service vessel was a US uh, revenue marine ship, Massachusetts on the Boston waterfront. And that's sort of how we started. Iteratively, the Coast Guard evolved in in the coming, decades and centuries, you know, we were the Revenue Marine Service until we became the Revenue Cutter Service. In 1915, the Revenue Cutter Service merged with the U.S. Life Saving Service and became what we call the modern United States Coast Guard. And there's been some subsequent changes. We we picked up uh, the, the Commerce Department's Bureau of Marine Inspections and Navigation in 1946, and that brought in a lot of the regulatory stuff we do today. But here we are, In 2021, sitting in the Department of Homeland Security, we were historically through Treasury from 1790 till 1967 when we moved over to DOT, Department of Transportation, and then in 2003, found our current home, which I think is the right place for the Coast Guard, inside of the Department of Homeland Security.
1: Well, you know, Admiral, I was wondering, the Coast Guard, with a critical mission and multiple missions, it has a dual military and law enforcement status. I was wondering if you could give us a bit um, of an overview of the scope of the multi-mission agency, how it's organized, maybe perhaps the size of your budget, geographical footprint, and and size and scope of, of the force.
0: Sure, Michael. I'd be happy to do that. And, you know, it's hard to get your head around this thing called the United States Coast Guard. We've got eleven statutory missions, and it was sort of reaffirmed in my mind just the complexity of that you can't take eleven statutory missions down to sort of a three bullet elevator speech. You yes, about size, we're about a little shy of forty-two thousand active duty men and women on, you know, full-time duty. We've got about 6,000 plus reservists that are, you know, part-time Coast Guardsmen. We bring them on sometimes for extended active duty. They come in for contingency operations. We've got about 9,000 plus or minus civilian employees, uh, predominantly most in Washington, D.C., but sprinkled across the Coast Guard. Then we have this really unique entity called the Coast Guard Auxiliary. I would argue one of the really premier volunteer forces across any part of government and they they are sprinkled around the country they do terrific things to complement coast guard missions um really one of their premier focal areas is uh, recreational boating safety they interface with mariners on the boat ramps they do courtesy marine inspections but that's the the size of the coast guard we operate the coast guard through a construct where there's there's coast guard operations east of the rocky mountains all the way over to the arabian gulf and west of the rocky mountains that you know goes around the other direction of the world that kind of takes you to the east coast of Africa. And we do that through two three-star operational commanders, Atlantic forces and the Pacific forces. And then under that, there's nine supported commands, district commands. So we're in Boston. We're in the Tidewater, Virginia area. We're in Miami, New Orleans. We're in uh, Alameda, the West Coast operations up in Seattle, the ninth districts, the Great Lakes region, Alaska and Hawaii. Those are our nine Geographic nodes, and under that, there's 35 subordinate commands called sectors. And that's how we we bring these Coast Guard capabilities to America. But there's a lot of different things we deliver to the nation. So, you talked about the law enforcement authorities, you're talking about being an armed force. You know, uh, under posse comitatus, you know, the armed forces generally can't do law enforcement, but this creature called the Coast Guard, we can work in both spaces. So, we're a named member of the national intelligence community, we're under Title 50 authorities. And we're a law enforcement agency. So there's some things that have to be fired while we're there, but we work in both of those camps. We're an armed force. You know, we used to be the smallest of the five armed forces. We're now the fifth largest with Space Force coming under us numerically. We're a regulatory agency. So we regulate, you know, the commerce of this nation. There's about $5.6 trillion of annual economic activity that comes in and out of our 360 plus ports, our 25,000 miles of nautical uh, waterways, the marine highway system and the Coast Guard's very busy there. We're a maritime first responder, and we've been busy. You know, last year was the busiest Atlantic Basin hurricane season in the history of record keeping. You know, you turn back the hands of time to 2017 when we pulled 11,000 people out of the streets of Houston um, during Hurricane Harvey, and we're down with Irma and Puerto Rico and Florida. Um, those are some of the things your Coast Guard does. We, we break ice, you know, domestically, we enable commerce year round, mostly year round commerce on the Great Lakes As a part of the Great Lakes when, you know, the uh, Sioux locks shut down and, you know, the lakes become somewhat isolated, but there's still commerce that goes on. So we're a lot of things to a lot of people, Michael, and I think that's the, the beauty of the Coast Guard. We're agile, we're adaptive.
1: Admiral Schultz, you you are the 26th Commandant of the U.S. Coast Guard, and I was wondering if you could share with us, what are your duties and responsibilities as commandant, and and more importantly, how do you and the and the Coast Guard support the overall mission of the U.S. Department of Homeland Security? So, as a
0: service chief, I'm in the business of man, train, and equip. I make sure, you know, I petition the Congress and the administration for sufficient resources to uh, to do all those things the Coast Guard does. Um, I make sure we we put the right training and equipment in the hands of Coast Guard men and women that are doing, you know arguably dangerous frontline work every single day and uh, i spend a lot of time elevating the work of the coast guard you you talked about budgetary how big of an organization we're about a 13 billion dollar coast guard we just eclipsed 13 billion dollars last year for the first time in our history and uh, i would argue there's a lot of punch that sounds like a big number but if you sort of put that in the scheme of it's a 750 plus or minus billion dollar department of defense I think America gets a tremendous return on investment of that $13 billion. And a portion of that pays retirements. A portion of that is for recapitalizing. The operational piece is about $9 billion of that $13 billion is what we use to conduct frontline operations here domestically and across the globe.
1: I was wondering, given your duties and responsibilities and and the shifting trends that are going on, what are some of your, I say, top three challenges that you face, but however many, and how have you sought to address them?
0: yeah, well, Michael, that's a that's a really uh, insightful question. You have to have sufficient resources to be the Coast Guard the nation needs. And uh, I think we've made some progress in the most recent budget cycles with the support of the foreign administration, the current administration, the budget that's on the hill right now, the twenty two president's budget. That's a solid uh, start point for the conversation. You know, I hope the Congress, as a historic done, have laid in some additional resources to help us get after some of our readiness challenges. That's my number one priority. It'll be my number one priority through the end of my tenure in the next 11 months here, but we need a ready Coast Guard. That's number one priority and that there's a people piece. I think number two, a subset of that is, you know, it's an increasingly competitive place to find uh, talent to come serve in the United States Coast Guard. You know, I survey along with the other service chiefs, America's landscape and, you know, somewhere slightly north of 25% of Americans' youth are eligible to serve in the armed forces. And you look within that percentage, you know, it's about 10% with a propensity to serve. I'm trying to find about 4,000. I, the Coast Guard is trying to find 4,000 young men and women that want to serve in our enlisted workforce, trying to find about 500 officers. And uh, and there's a competitive piece there. You know, we just, as an armed forces writ large, adopted a new retirement strategy back in 2018, a blended retirement. So. The folks of my ilk and, and subsequent, or previous to 2018, when you joined the armed forces, it was a defined benefit that you you reap the benefits of it 20 years. Now under the new blended retirement, you pay into a thrift savings type plan. There's some matching, government match, personal match. You know, arguably, you can get to the same sort of outcome numerically, monetarily, at the end of 20 years if you're if you're a good investor and you pay yourself first. But you know, Coast Guardsmen at year 12 now have a choice. You know, we offer a couple months of pay to sign up for four more years, but now you have some type of a benefit that you've paid into, you've had some match, and you can go out the door. We need to keep those, you know, mid-career Coast Guardsmen in our ranks. We have the highest retention of the armed forces. We need those technical specialists. We need those men and women to lead the next generation of Coasties. So I would tell you, the splendid retirement model is something that that I do not underestimate the complexity of. How do we treat our Coast Guardsmen? How do we ensure they see opportunities to move up in the organization? Are we taking care of their families? We don't have those big base support facilities that help our folks. You know, we're in the local economies. We have 10 child development centers across the whole Coast Guard. So most of our folks get those services in the private sector. So there's that piece. And then really I'd say the third thing is, you know, our our leadership team is working very hard as we bring in those 4,000 young men and women, those 500 officers. You know, how do we develop a coast drive that looks more like the nation we serve? That's hard work in that pipeline to bring folks in. We also wanna bring folks in that broaden that diversity. We have high contact with the public we serve and having a workforce that's, you know, forged with different perspective, different experiences, different demographics, that's absolutely essential.
1: So Admiral, what has surprised you most since taking on your leadership role as the 26th Commandant?
0: I never thought I'd be explaining to a workforce of, you know, 57,000, how they went without pay for 35 days. And uh, that was, you know, the, the late 2018, early 2019, it was about a five-week period there when the Department of Homeland Security budget was sort of caught in, the, in a little bit of no man's land between the administration and the Hill. And we got through that. We asked our Coast Guardsmen to continue to stand the watch. We asked their families to to stay resilient. You said you know, you might be dealing with a global pandemic commandant that that was very different. I don't know how we anticipated that, but we did not throttle back at all. We actually had a, a surge operation from April to the end of the calendar year in 2020 on the narcotics front. So I, I think those are some of the things. What didn't surprise me was our ability to step into all that uncertainty and still thrive in there. I'm real proud of what our Coast Guard men and women have done and their families have helped them do
1: You know, uh, Admiral. That's a great segue to my next question, and it's around your leadership style. And you know, given your background, your experience, your um, time with the Coast Guard, and different leadership roles, and now as the leader of the Coast Guard, I was wondering, uh, what are the characteristics, in your mind, of an effective leader? And perhaps, maybe you could share with us some of the core leader lessons learned in leadership, or principles that you have that you follow in your current role.
0: Yeah, I would tell you, you know, leadership. I think. And I'm not sure anyone's born as a gifted leader. I think leadership is something iteratively, you refine your skills. It's it's sort of what you learn from others. I've had the privilege of working for, for many terrific leaders inside the Coast Guard lifelines, other elements of government, you know, outside of assignments here. Um, and I think I'm an amalgamation of different styles. I like to talk about, you know, how do you lead through leaders? And I, I mentioned our construct, you know, the commandant doesn't have the time or the wherewithal or really the understanding to direct all Coast Guard operations. And I think what the COVID pandemic challenge presented was, you know, I talked a lot about, and I'm not so sure I coined the term, but I talked about decisional agility. And, and you know, I generally think leadership is through a lens that empowers people, but it also sets goals it sets objectives. It, it, I tend to probably practice a bit of an intrusive leadership because I think you sort of have to have clear expectations to get things done. I always say, if you want to get different outcomes, you have to think differently. So I think my leadership style is leading through leaders, setting clear expectations, you know, uh, you know, employing that decisional agility where those closest to the problems are best positioned to find solutions to those problems and put your voice into it. You know, the shot clock is always running. So how do you pace it where you're not crushing your folks, but also to where you're going to see some results that make us a better organization at the end of the day.
1: What is the strategic direction for the U.S. Coast Guard? We will explore this question and much more with Admiral Carl Schultz, Commandant of the U.S. Coast Guard, when our conversation continues on the Business of Government Hour. Welcome back to the Business of Government Hour. I'm Michael Keegan, your host, and our guest today is Admiral Carl Schultz, Commandant of the U.S. Coast Guard. Getting to your vision and realizing your vision, I was wondering if you could give us an overview of your Commandant's direction and the guiding principles that frame that direction.
0: Yeah, um, so my guiding principles coming in, you sort of, A, I joined this service many, many years ago. thinking I was going to go for two years, uh, a junior college at the Coast Guard Academy. My dad was a teacher, public school educator, and uh, you know, I wasn't sure what I wanted to do. I grew up grew 50 miles from the United States Coast Guard Academy, and here I am 42 years, years later. So either I'm a guy who can't execute a plan or I've really fallen in love with the, the work of the Coast Guard. Coast Guardsmen. <laughs> I think it's the latter. I know it's the latter. But, you know, I think what, what I would say is when we came in and you say, how do you talk about the Coast Guard as you're building out your team? You know, I talked about a Coast Guard that's ready, relevant, and responsive. And it's funny, you know, the team picked up on that. Every document that came across my desk had the three R's in it. And I said, that wasn't necessarily my intent, but it was a way to say, hey, the Coast Guard wins by getting after those threats where the nation needs something like the Coast Guard. You know, we win by thickening the lines of collaboration. At this point in 2021, you know, we're in our 18th year come 9 11. Um, as the Coast Guard sitting in DHS, how do we thicken those collaborative lines with our parent department? And we come up on the 20th anniversary of the 9-11 tragic events here. Um, we talked about responsive. Where we win is those Harvey situations where, you know, Coast Guardsmen don't train to fly over urban environments and pull people off roofs and rescue swimmers generally jump in the water and pull somebody into the basket. They don't jump on a roof with an ax and hack their way into a attic to get people up. But that's an adaptive agile thing. So that's that responsive piece. It's the ready piece. And then really the relevance that third R is, you know, the the work I talked about enabling that $5.6 trillion of economic activity. When you think about the United States, we're a maritime nation, it's a global world in terms of how commerce moves and the Coast Guard right in the thick of that here domestically, it's, you know, South Florida, you know, the three largest cruise ports in America, it's Miami, it's Canaveral, it's Port Everglades, sometimes two and three rotate, but there's millions of passengers that leave on cruises. That, in, that, that industry's coming back. We help regulate that. We help make sure those ships are environmentally compliant in port. But there's a lot there. So I, I started looking through the lens of this ready, relevant, responsive Coast Guard. And then we put the team to work on really building out a four-year strategic plan. And there was really, um, at the end of the day, three really lines of effort there. you know, it was maximizing readiness today and tomorrow. And that was my top priority. I, I alluded to just how critical it was that, you know, service begins with our people. They're our greatest strength, but it's about empowering them. It's about resourcing them, giving them capable assets, modern systems, you know, resilient infrastructure. We got a long backlog of infrastructure problems. We've been patching roofs, not building new facilities. And we're on a healthier trajectory. The second, real line of effort was addressing the nation's complex maritime challenges. I'm sure we'll talk about cyber. That's an increasing threatscape. We, we saw the solar winds major hack. We're dealing with ransomware things, but how do you pull the Coast Guard forward into the 21st century and say, what does the regulatory landscape look like now in this cyber domain? Well, I've told Secretary Majorca say, hey, boss, I really want to help you own the maritime piece of the nation's critical infrastructure and, and really work in that domain. And then the third thing was about delish- delivering mission excellence anytime, anywhere. When you roll up our our, our bias for action, our, our adaptive agile forces, our extraordinary people, you can put them against any problem set that's wet or not wet things in many cases, and we're going to make a difference. We're going to, you know, help the nation and secure the homeland, help the nation play the away game as we advance, you know project sovereign presence in places like the high latitudes, the Arctic, the Antarctic, uh, an increasing presence throughout the Indo-Pacific region. There's those three lines of effort, Michael, stemming off of sort of that, that, that construct, looking at a ready, relevant, responsive coast guard. That's, that's sort of the strategic plan that we've been operating on. And despite the distractions we talked about, the challenges we talked about, we have stayed the course. We have always gone back to say, Hey, are we moving those three strategic objectives forward on this watch? I think the answer to that is yes.
1: Admiral Schultz, as the global pandemic recedes, would you tell us more about the role the Coast Guard played in our national pandemic response? And moreover, how has the pandemic impacted the Coast Guard?
0: So let me let me let me grab that and sort of throw out the banner phrase and say we have never been busier. So we continued to stay on the watch throughout the pandemic. We had the uptick in counter narcotic operations I talked about in calendar year 2020, and you know if you really we've we've studied numbers, you know, in everybody's living room on TV, papers, radio, we've talked about the tragic number of deaths, the number of cases, you know, a number that we don't talk about is it's somewhere, you know, between 80 and 90,000 of American lives that are lost in drug overdoses, drug-related violence to, to to the drug threat. You know, it's it's fentanyl, it's methamphetamines, it's cocaine, that is still going on. We are very active in our Western Hemisphere strategy, thwarting a list of narcotics, and we can come back to that. You know, we saw an uptick in recreational boating. You know, folks were looking at safe, healthy activities in a COVID environment. Many took to the water. You know, many that take to the water are, are novice, new boaters. So we saw an uptick in, in search and rescue cases. And, and and I think the boating statistics fatalities were up a little bit last year. We want to drive that down. We want to make sure there's an educated populace that's operating on America's waters. Waterways are increasingly complicated. You know, we hear and we see a lot of talk about alternative energy. There's permits, we work with uh, the Bureau of Oceans, Energy Man, BOEM, and I think there's pending permits for more than 1,700, you know, wind, not farms, but wind towers off the East Coast of the United States alone from Maine to Florida. There's an evolving conversation about wind in the Gulf of Mexico, SpaceX, commercial space that we watch what SpaceX is doing. I think down in Florida, they were averaging about a dozen launches, some manned. I think they're marching north uh you know mr musk and his company talking about dozens maybe north of 45 50 space operations down in florida down in the gulf some of that touches us uh, the the california coast so there's a lot out there that is that has pulled the coast guard into this into all these different issues at a time where you know we're also dealing with COVID. i talked about the difficulty of sending ships down range you know the difficulty of standing and watching a boat station how do you keep your crews healthy so that you know if someone was infected with the virus and had to step out, you don't shut a whole 40-person, 60-person boat station down. We had to think really strategically how we stood the watches. Those days when folks would come in and know, common training, work together, get after some of the projects, we kept those crews pretty isolated so they could be full-up ready rounds and be watchstanders. So the COVID thing has, has, has sort of forced our thinking about doing things differently. Um, we embraced a tech revolution during this period that was really we have made years of decisions, kind of kicking the can on upgrading our, our C5I, you know, our computers, our communications, our intelligence, our surveillance, all that C5ISR stuff. Budgetarily, we are forced to keep kicking that can. You get to a point where, you know, it's hard to recruit a young Coast Guard man or woman, keep them on the team and they have more mobility in their personal phone than we give them on their desktop or their mobility. So we're we're really trying to pull the Coast Guard forward from a technological standpoint, uh, connectivity to our cutters that are operating for shore to do ship's business, stay connected back with family. So I think the crisis, the COVID moment here, this moment, of, you know, year and a half, has forced us to really think differently. We got a little help with the CARES Act legislation, put some money in our hands towards some of that tech stuff, We've been taking that message to the Hill. So, against this backdrop, Michael, we have really sort of reimagined what Coast Guard service looks like going forward. You know, we don't go back to the same Coast Guard. We go back to a more tech enabled Coast Guard, you know, that recruiting challenge. I need mobility in the hands of my recruiters. If they're sitting on the couch with a mom and dad about his or her son, their son going to join the Coast Guard, their daughter join the Coast Guard, they need to seal that deal there. The Marines come in and they have those capabilities, they have a little deeper pockets make sure we're competitive and using uh, technology to to make us competitive.
1: I want to get into now some of the um, specific initiatives and and areas of import. One is the Western Hemisphere strategy. What are some of the key elements of that strategy? And really where I'm going is, what are you doing to disrupt the maritime traffic and activities of trans criminal networks? What are some of the, perhaps you could highlight some of the challenges in this area and also offer some successes?
0: Yeah, I I think when you think about, I talked about, you know, the the number of deaths here in America related to, you know, drug overdoses, drug-related violence, criminal activity. You know, it's, it's a staggering number, 80, 90,000. That's a big number. That That's more than the, the highway and accident, you know, vehicle accidents on an annual basis. So that's a number we should pay attention to. It's a number that matters. Um, you know, our Western Hemisphere strategy really is after, it's about combating illicit networks that are smuggling drugs, that are doing human smuggling. It's about you know having secure borders, and it's really about safeguarding commerce. We talked a little bit about the commerce piece. You know, historically, in in recent years, last year there was about a ninety-day, a quarter of the calendar year, fiscal year, however you want to slice it. When really most of the nations in the hemisphere borders were just shut in, so there wasn't a lot of drug activity in the in the second calendar year quarter of calendar year twenty, sort of that that March, April, April, May, June timeframe. But the rest of your things picked up, but on average. You know, we're removing, you know, somewhere around 440,000 pounds of, of illicit narcotics annually. We're rolling up about 600 smugglers that are really, you know, tied to transnational criminal organizations. Uh, transnational crime across the globe is, you know, multi-billion dollar industry. Here in the Western Hemisphere, I look at the corrosive effects of those illicit activities. You know, the drugs, 95% of the drugs we interdicted see come out of the Indian Ridge, really predominantly out of Columbia. Those drugs make first landfall in places like the Northern Tier, northern Triangle countries, Honduras, El Salvador, Guatemala. You know, when we look at what manifests at the southwest border, people flee those countries to find a better life in the United States, more opportunity. Some of that ties to the corruption, the violence of these drugs that we're, that we're thwarting at sea. So when we can take bulk, large-scale drugs out of the what we call the transit zone, the supply chain, I think it has a a stabilizing effect. Clearly, it it, it hasn't had a fully stabilizing effect. We're taking a portion of the whole there, but it's important work, and uh, we will continue after that. On any given day, we're somewhere between four and and eight, nine major Coast Guard cutters. That's a 210-foot or bigger ship, generally supported by an embarked helicopter, um, maritime patrol aircraft. We try to You know, drive our operations with intelligence, so we're not just plowing holes in the ocean. We're we're using intelligence to put our platforms in the right places. There's international collaboration with allies and partners. There's regional collaboration. We work through uh, U.S. Southern Command and Joint Interagency Task Force South, which is a Coast Guard flag level real detection and monitoring operation in Key West. We we do this Western Hemisphere work. It's it's team ball. It's collaborative ball. And, uh, and I would argue we do it as well as anywhere in the world, but it's a pervasive threat. More capacity allows us to get after more of it, Michael.
1: You know, that's a great segue into the southern maritime border security efforts that you're working on. Can you give us a heads up on what's going on down there?
0: Yeah, So, um, like I said, it's it's the drug interdiction that helps, you know, stymie, thwart some of the the instability, the corruption, the violence that gets into the Central American quarter that that trigger it's a push factor for activity that shows up at our at our southwest land border you know um we 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 try we we do interdiction for illegal migration at sea you know we have a normal process for folks to enter the country when folks sort of you know skirt around that process try to come either by by raft or fast boat from cuba from bahamas you know we 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 stop those folks at sea we understand the circumstances we we do a a screening to understand what are their circumstances but you know there's a border security element of that that's in the in the Carib here in the western hem um you know it's off the south carolina coast as we see folks you know the the borders tend to be I, I say it's the balloon theory you know you squeeze a balloon in one place and it surges in another place you know we've had an uptick in uh in, in maritime migration off the southern coast of california so, so we're active on all those actors here as part of our Western Hemisphere strategy. And uh, at the end of the day, we're down there supporting the Department of Homeland Security team. We've got some Coast Guard men and women operating on the Rio Grande River right now. You know, it's a very dangerous waterway that folks come across. And, you know, it was a case a week and a half or so ago when probably a, a transnational criminal, a, a migrant smuggler, you know, saw law enforcement presence and pushed, you know, some folks out in the water, you know, really, to potentially their death there Coasties came up on. It. I think there's young children involved, no life jackets. Could have been a disaster situation. That, that's really, as much as it's a, a thwarting illicit migration activity, it's really probably saving lives because it would have potentially resulted in death. These smugglers have very little regard for the humans involved. It, it's about money-making and transnational criminal activity. And so we're there. We're, we're down there with some medical folks supporting uh, the DHS team. We're down there with some general-purpose coasties that are enabling border patrol agents to stay on the front lines and do the critical work their authorities allow them to do. But that's kind of what's going on in response to your question at the southwest, or the southern border.
1: Admiral Schultz, the nation needs a safe and efficient maritime transportation system, an MTS. Rapid and technological advances are changing the character of maritime operations. How is the Coast Guard setting and enforcing effective standards? And by that, I mean like credentialing that advance maritime safety and environmental stewardship while keeping a pace with rapid technology applications in the afloat, ashore, and cyber elements.
0: Sure, Michael. There's a lot in that question. I mean, we... We credential U.S. Mariners, you know, so it's the entire U.S. uh, Mariner population, you know, predominantly operating on the the western rivers and uh, the heartland areas, but in some of our coastal waters. Um, That is important. Um, We inspect vessels for compliance with with safety regulations. This is commercial vessels that do business on our ports. We do flag state control for foreign vessels that come in to make sure they come in and they're, they're complying with our environmental laws, our safety criteria. Um, we look at cruise ships that operate and call in the United States, and uh, we look at the environmental aspects of that. Their emissions, their, their safety. If you were to send your your mom or dad on a cruise, you want to know that, God forbid, there was some kind of catastrophe. See that crew, predominantly foreign crew, is trained. They will get through that situation, bring your loved ones home safely. Um, there's about 31 million jobs. that tie. To the marine transportation system, I alluded earlier to about a 5.5, 5.6 trillion dollar annual economic impact. That's a big deal. And uh, the goods, you take a place like Los Angeles, Long Beach. There's a that's the port complex out there. There's sort of two ports in the port, and about 40 percent of all the goods that come into our nation come through L.A.L.B. Long Beach, Los Angeles, Long Beach, and you know they get on the rail corridors and they they move by rail and truck into the heartland. And it's, you know, we're in a just-in-time national supply system. So if you were to have a a strike, a longshoreman strike, if you were to have some kind of attack on a seaport like Los Angeles, Long Beach, that complex, you know, you're 72, 96 hours into it when you start to see things not on the shelves that we come to take for granted being on the shelves at Macy's and Walmart and Target. So it's a just-in-time delivery system. We enable that, I think, you know, 2021, I think about, you know, how do you shut that down? How do you hold that at risk? It's a cyber attack. You know, we saw back in 2017, the not pay attack, which attacked AP molar Mersk. And, and that was to the tune of two, $300 million of damage to them. They had to recapitalize 50 laptop computers that allowed them to have visibility on their cargo operations in and in a, from a global perspective. So, the, the the cyber threatscape is, is pretty pretty challenging when you think about it in the maritime domain we saw the uh, evergiven it's that large evergreen container ship you know it's one of the large container ships that that you know got cattywampus in the in the suez canal and i think within a matter of days there was almost 400 ships that were backlogged in the queue you know the loss of revenue on that was you know hundreds of millions of dollars a day um, if not approach a billion dollars a day that's a big deal so the 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 maritime transportation system domestically the global maritime transportation system it, it's it's fragile from the standpoint of you know potential cyber threats or environmental threats so we are we are working in that in that domain with partners with uh, international partners so coast guard's in that mission space uh, both domestically and on a global front there Michael
1: yeah, um, Admiral, I wanna talk about the Arctic um, and the you know domain awareness is a big challenge. And what are some of the challenges to a maritime Arctic um, to the Coast Guard? And perhaps you could tell us a little about the Arctic strategy and what the service uh, is doing in those areas.
0: The Arctic is from a geostrategic reach of importance has never been more critical. You know, we used to talk about the Arctic as sort of emerging threats there, but I would tell you it's a contemporary national security issue today and um you know when you think about our national security strategy our national defense strategy that's been oriented there's a there's a, a move afoot in the Biden administration to sort of update those strategies but you know we talk about our two near peer competitors russia and china they both declared the arctic as strategic priorities you know russia is a legitimate arctic nation one of the eight that's part of the arctic council china is a self-declared near arctic state but they are investing they're trying to influence um, expand their influence in the Arctic and, uh, you know, Russia's building out additional icebreakers. They have the largest fleet in the world. Uh, I think they envision with the changing climatological landscape, you know, more open water where there used to be ice, the ability to, to take a, you know, a ship out of Shanghai, China, you can shorten up the transit maybe 11, 12 days if you go through the Northern Sea route here versus going up through the Suez Canal to reach the European market. So there's a lot of moving parts here that make the Arctic important. I look at the Arctic in terms of natural resources, you know, about a third of the world's untapped LNG, somewhere in the teens, percentage of of, uh, of petroleum products, you know, rich minerals uh, to the tune of a trillion dollars on the ocean floor. I, I think right now, I think, but I know, you know, parts of the audio industry in terms of, you know, materials that make chips that enable the building of cars. There's, there's global supply chain issues and shortages there. So the Arctic presents a lot of Really important things for the United States to think about. It's a threat vector for you know potential attack on the homeland here over the Arctic. My my fellow uh, senior military leader Glenn Van Herck in Northcom you know, he pays a lot of attention to an increasingly pervasive amount of Russian long-range bomber flights flying up off the state of Alaska here, you know, and, and butting up against our United States airspace there. So there's a lot of things to think about in the Arctic. Our goal up there is. We're trying to better understand space. We're trying to enhance our ability to operate in that very dynamic environment. It's tough. We had the uh, 45-year-old Polar Star, our one heavy icebreaker that's in the U.S. national arsenal. That's the only heavy icebreaker in the United States operated up there this last winter. Typically, that ship goes down to the Antarctic every year and breaks out McMurdo Station, the National Science Foundation facility, and brings in the resupply vessels. But we were back in the Arctic this past year for, for multiple week deployment. It's a tough environment. It's dark all winter and uh, we're breaking ice. We're, you know, building out our fleet of future Arctic sailors as we build more heavy icebreaker ships. You know, the second line of effort is we want to strengthen the rules-based order and the high latitudes and really, you know, how do we continue to innovate and adapt and how do we uh, promote, you know, we want the Arctic to be a safe, secure, environmentally sound space. How do we preserve that? How do we promote that? How do we promote resiliency up there? Every year, Michael, just to wrap it up, we do this Arctic shield. So we take Coast Guardsmen, predominantly up from our Alaska-based footprint. We forward deploy up to Kotzebue, which is above the Arctic Circle. We stand on the watch with a couple of helicopters. We do emb- engagement with the community. We are learning, understanding the indigenous populations, their needs. How do we cooperate and collaborate with them not holding at risk their lifestyles, but also recognizing there's there's national security implications in the space.
1: You know, sir, I was wondering, could you give us an update or maybe give us some context around efforts to accelerate the acquisition of a new Polar security cutter, uh, heavy icebreaker class, uh, to meet the demands of the Polar region?
0: So we mentioned those that one heavy icebreaker we have, we have a, a medium icebreaker, the Healy. It was built back in late 90s, early 2000s. So that's a 21-year-old ship mostly a research vessel. We're doing something exciting with that. It's going to do about 30 days of what we call Western or Pacific Arctic science this year. Then she's going to transit through the Northwest Passage, you know, north over Canada, come out to the Atlantic. We haven't had an icebreaker in the Atlantic in a bunch of years, a large breaker and probably get over to Greenland, demonstrate to our Atlantic based, you know, fellow Arctic council members, that you know the Coast Guard is keenly interested in operating and partnering in that region, but polar security cutters. To so your question is, you know, for about a decade plus, we had a conversation about we needed to recapitalize our heavy icebreaker fleet. Now the good news is the consolidated appropriation that Congress passed last year for the current fiscal year 2021 that has uh, money for production of the second polar security cutter, the second large icebreaker. Previous year's budgets. Um, allowed us to uh, award a contract for the first polar security cutter in the spring of 2019. So um, we're doing that work down at VT Halter in in Baskadula, Mississippi. And and arguably, you know, I think this fall we'll start cutting steel and uh, I'm excited. You know, we're going to have some new ships that allow us to project sovereign presence and influence into the high latitude area. It's a program record for three ships. Um, I think, you know, obviously we want to, stay on track we haven't built a heavy icebreaker in you know 45 plus years as a nation almost 50 years it's different kind of steel work it's complicated uh it's a very aggressive timeline the, the program record talks about acceptance of the first ship in 2024 you know we have not moved that line but that's pretty ambitious and uh but we're getting after it and uh, i think there's a conversation to be had about is really sufficient number of heavy icebreakers i, I think we probably need you know something between six and nine ships. And, you know, maybe they're not all heavy breakers, maybe there's some uh, medium breakers there, but I think we're having those, you know, the sort of the, the underpinnings of the right conversations about really how much capacity you need in the Coast Guard to, to be relevant and, uh, and responsive in the high latitudes.
1: What is the U.S. Coast Guard doing to modernize its critical assets and infrastructure? We will explore this question and much more with Admiral Carl Schultz, Commandant of the U.S. Coast Guard, when our conversation continues on the Business of Government Hour.
2: How does an agency decide upon and implement a performance management framework that will be successful for their specific administration? The IBM Center Report, A Practitioner's Framework for Measuring Results, follows the implementation and results of the C-STAT Management Framework in Colorado's Department of Homeland Security in hopes that it can guide others who may want to institute a similar approach. Download A Practitioner's Framework for Measuring Results by Melissa Wavelet on businessofgovernment.org today. Agile methodology has allowed for agencies to keep up with the growing demands for fast response to problem solving. The Opportunity Project, TOP, serves as a catalyst in adapting agile techniques to solve complex agency mission problems. TOP works with federal agencies to identify challenges and facilitate iterative approaches in response. In the IBM Center Report, Agile Problem Solving in Government, Joel Gurren and Katerina Rebello discuss the factors of success involved in TOP. Download your free copy today at businessofgovernment.org.
1: Welcome back to the Business of Government Hour. I'm Michael Keegan, your host, and our guest today is Admiral Carl Schultz, Commandant of the U.S. Coast Guard. I'm wondering if you could talk to us about your efforts to recapitalize both for surface readiness, boats and cutters, but also aviation aircraft. Um, Would you tell us more about the efforts in this area, about your building capacity? What are some of the challenges you are facing to recapitalization?
0: Well, Michael, we have the largest shipbuilding program since the Second World War. So there's a lot of really positive news as we recapitalize. Our largest platforms, you know, we, we operated a, a fleet of 378 foot high endurance cutters since, you know, the mid and late latter part of the sixties, we just decommissioned the, uh, the oldest statement in that fleet, the Douglas Monroe up in Kodiak, Alaska a few weeks ago. So that was the 12th that came out of service being replaced by a fleet the program. Of record was for eight national security cutters. Uh, Congress saw fit to give us three additional. So, uh, we took acceptance of the ninth and put her down range, uh, shakedown cruise. This, uh, this past six month period, she operated off the East coast of South America, did some, some illegal unregulated reported fishing work with, uh, with the Uruguayans, with the, uh, Brazilians, uh, the Guyanese, um, we had a touch point with, uh, with Argentina. So nine of 11 national security cutters have been accepted and are out doing uh, the ship's business and we're still doing what we call post delivery availability work on the stone the ninth but she's marching towards you know full operating capability in the coming months we'll build out 10 and 11 we're building a fleet of offshore patrol cutters Uh, program of record there is 25 ships we awarded the contract back in the fall of uh, 2018 to eastern shipbuilding group in panama city for nine plus two additional ships panama city got hammered by uh, Hurricane Michael, which was recategorized sort of in the in the aftermath as not a Category 4, but a Category 5 ship uh, hurricane. And that really devastated Eastern shipbuilding group. So we did, working with uh, the department and other elements of government, we did some extraordinary contractual relief to give Eastern a chance to come back to the table and reconstitute um, after the damages. And uh, we scoped it down to up to four ships. So we are building the first and second offshore patrol cutters down in Eastern Shipping Group right now. The Argus is number one. She's marching towards 50% completion with a, a you know an acceptance date late 22 uh the United States Coast Guard Cutter Chase. The second offshore patrol cutter is is being constructed as we speak here. I was down there a couple of weeks ago for the keel laying there. So we're we're enthusiastic about the offshore patrol cutter fleet, and that replaces. You know, our 1960s vintage 50 plus year old 210 fleet. That's a fleet of 14 ships that replaces the 1980s, early 90s, 270 foot famous class ships that'll be around for another 15, 20 years. But those ships are getting old and we're excited about that. We've accepted 44, maybe 45 of 58 domestic fast response cutters, first two of six additional for a total fleet of 64. Arrived in Bahrain, where we stand the watch on the Arabian Gulf with the Navy's fifth fleet. A lot of goodness there. We're going to do a contract award next spring for waterways commerce cutters. These are ships, on average, that are 55 years old. They enable our ability to do all the aids and navigation work, construction work in the western rivers and some of the American, you know, the Gulf cities, Gulfport cities and uh you know we the oldest in athletes north is 75 years old and on average I said 55 years old so a lot of good things with shipbuilding pivoting over to aviation we continue to onboard C-130 J's to replace the old H models and uh we're moving J's out to Barber's Point Hawaii this summer we're transitioning Puerto Rico from a a MH-60 Dolphin Aerospatial footprint to new to do uh, MH-60 Jayhawks, bigger, more capable helicopters. We need to drive a fleet of 98 Dolphin helicopters, which have been great, they've been workforces, but they've, the aerospace, yeah, Airbus has stopped building them, it's getting increasingly hard to find parts. So we're gonna drive, draw down a fleet of 98, drive up a fleet of about 45 plus Jayhawks to a larger fleet, start to swap out locations in 22, Air Station New Orleans will go from a Dolphin MH-65 location to a 60. We did that in Traverse City in recent years, and that'll be the norm across the Coast Guard. We'll still have 65s, Dolphins flying for a while, but we're recapitalizing that. We're missionizing our C-27J Spartan aircraft that we got from the Air Force and a bit of a swap of uh, some old 130Hs with the fire service, some planes that the air force was done with the 27 j spart so we got a lot going on in terms of recapitalizing um, the coast guard both surface and air michael but the good news is bipartisan bicameral support to keep those programs moving forward we need stable predictable funding the administration uh, seems to be uh you know dialed in and supportive of that so i i really think we're on a good trajectory to put the
1: right capabilities in the hands of coasties to really be effective and do the bidding for the nation. So Admiral, as a follow-up, what are you doing to enhance Coast Guard infrastructure readiness?
0: Yeah, Michael. So I, I talked about this disaggregated Coast Guard. So we have a lot of facilities across the country. We have a lot of old facilities. We have some locations like in Memphis where we came in with trailers years ago as an interim solution, and they're still there 20 plus years later and they're permanent structures. And, and we owe it to our folks to have more capable modern locations. You know, I, I went back I talked about Harvey and Houston. And one of the ability, one of the reasons we were able in 2017 to really operate effectively out of Houston and rescue those 11,000 people, we're in a modern facility. You know, the sector building was a new facility. It was built with supplemental funds from a hurricane, previous year's hurricane activities down there. But you see the difference when you have modern facilities, modern technologies that enable important Coast Guard work. And we need to replicate that other places, but, you know, a healthy organization recapitalizes their physical plant, you know, to the tune of about two to 4% on an annual basis, you know, our 10 year average is about 0.4%, you know, so we're about 20% of the pace on the low end, maybe, you know, 12% of the pace on the higher end of a more aggressive company in terms of recapitalizing our infrastructure. So that's tough. And that just, that problem just sort of exacerbates itself. Until you start pressing in, so we, we're making that case as part of the readiness conversation for more resources, more resources to to play catch-up ball with infrastructure. I think we're making progress. You know, if you really sort of played that out, you know, we would replace the entire Coast Guard shore plant, our physical infrastructure, about every quarter, you know, every 250 years. That's not sustainable. You know, we need to change that. So we're pressing hard on that. We're making some progress. You know, again, resources the damage facilities from from major storms um you know we have challenges where you know i talked about an increasingly representative Guard of the nation we serve when you look at cape may our training center our center of gravity for our enlisted workforce you know we're in 1960s vintage buildings and uh they weren't built back in 1960 for mixed gender recruit classes so we've made them work i'm very excited that the president's 2022 budget that's on what we call congressional C stage right now and up on Capitol Hill. It's the first chunk of change to start upgrading our training facilities, a new barracks up there, one of many we need. But that's exciting because to compete, to bring in, you know, the best of America's youth and talent and get them into the Coast Guard ranks takes modern facilities. So we're, we're working on that. You know, we have, when you look across our Department of Defense colleagues, they do a lot more You know, government housing, public private venture housing across the 42,000 person Coast Guard, we got about 3,200, 3,250 homes. You know, what we call Coast Guard owned homes uh, that we maintain. On average, they're 45 years old and we sort of patch them up. So it's really about, you know, I had the opportunity to be up in Jonesport, Maine the week before last and we turned the key on 12 new homes. You want to see some smiling Coast Guard families in their faces modern home with modern amenities you know that that's just life-changing and we had a chance to meet some of those young families that are there we need to replicate that success across the coast Guard. and we're getting after that we're, we're telling that story to uh, to our congressional overseers we're talking about the competitiveness of the, of the talent marketplace and i think there's you know folks are listening you don't fix that overnight but we need to continue to to press in on that
1: Sounds terrific. So, you know, in February 2020, you announced the start of the Coast Guard technology revolution, you mentioned earlier, COVID really precipitated a lot of a lot of things in this area to mobile, reliable, integrated information system. I was wondering, Admiral Schultz, could you tell us more about the efforts of the Coast Guard to modernize its IT infrastructure and enhance your mobile platforms?
0: Yeah, absolutely. You know, a personal example. Here I am, the Atlantic Forces Commander in a busy 2017 hurricane season, and you lose email connectivity. I'm traveling downrange through the region. You know, as the Senior Operations Commander, on behalf of my predecessor in this job, Paul Zuntz, and and I can't connect back to the to the enterprise technologically. We said that's a problem. You know, we we do so much of the work we do enabled by mobility. Now that when you don't have it, it's pretty stark how drastic it is in your ability to be effective so that caught my attention you know i looked at you know sort of patching old systems because of you know trade off investment decisions when we had to figure out you know you got to you got to pay for pay raises that that come through the national defense authorization and we absolutely want to put the right pay in people's hands we need to invest in training and you know you know equipment for folks to do their jobs but our it kept taking a back seat and we've gotten after that um, to, with the help of some, some CARES Act funds, we've made some investments from inside our existing maneuver space. And we've taken to the Hill the urgency of, of that from a competitive standpoint of keeping talent on the team, attracting talent. And I think we're making progress. You know, an inspector that goes out and does those sports state in, inspections on foreign flag vessels. You know, they, they work a hard day, eight, 10 hours out there inspecting vessels, crawling around in build spaces and engine rooms. Then they gotta go back to their desk and fat finger a lot of data. They should be able to upload that on a, on a piece of mobility out there, an iPad or something. So we're close to fielding what we call the inspect app. Right now, we fielded the capability. I said, hey, we've been talking about this for years. Let's go buy these mobile units. It started with, it looks more like a Kindle. So you don't have to take a backpack full of books. But now we're actually, this inspect app is taking it from the Kindle to really an enabling capability and our inspectors are excited about that how do you use that for our boarding officers we're using that in you know in some of our flight planning for our aviators so we're we're getting smarter we're looking at you know big data um, data analytics how do we use um, data to inform decision making in the coast guard and we built a small office here that's getting after uh, data analytics and uh, machine learning i'm excited about that you know you start to get into the maintenance cycles and with the right data and the right command of the data, you have to have good data, but the ability to manipulate it, manage it, you start to get in predictive algorithms for how we get leading indicators of equipment failure, stuff like that. So it's absolutely essential, Michael, that we press in there to be a learning, data-informed organization, and we feel the mobility I talked about in the hands of our smart coasties who they're smart. They wanna be tech-enabled and that's, part of a retention piece to keep them on the team to say, hey, I'm working for an organization that wants to put the right tools, the right technology in my hands to make sure every hour I spend on the job is not an hour I could be home finding some balance in my life because, because I'm tech enabled and smart on the job, get a little more time to do things you like with your family or
1: your interests outside of work. So comment before I let you go, I, I have one last question. And it's an advice question. What advice would you give someone who's perhaps thinking about a career in public service maybe perhaps who might be interested in joining the coast guard
0: yeah so michael I, that's an easy one for me you know I, i'm in my 39th year now in uniform and and i just find public service to be tremendously rewarding you know i find the ability to serve with my uniform shipmates my coast guard civilian colleagues our auxiliary workforce um our reservists you know just energize you know these are young men and women you know some middle-aged older men and women Our auxiliary tents have a little bit of them these are folks that want to make a difference you know government employment isn't necessarily the highest paid employment you might make more in the private sector but boy the reward the rewards of uh of helping americans whether that's rolling in as a maritime first responder in the hurricanes just pulling people from the water in a sinking vessel you know thwarting illicit narcotics that would get into our schools and on american streets well, i found that to be tremendously rewarding. I'll tell you, we're hiring right now. You know, we're looking for young men and women that want to be part of that team. I would tell you the opportunities to jump on the team, you know, it's a meritocracy in the armed forces. You work hard. There's opportunities to move up, you know, in this inclusive Coast Guard. You know, I want every man, woman that joins our team to feel like they got tens of thousands of shipmates that are pushing them to the next rung on the ladder. So my advice would be, take a good hard look at public service and you know, maybe don't discount it because you can make a little more money elsewhere. Maybe it looks hard. There's some sacrifice in deploying, going to sea. But boy, I'll tell you, my fondest memories of being a Coast Guardsman are probably my sea duty tours. When I was gone 185 days a year, you know, away from family and missing birthdays, missing holidays. But we're doing work and and forging relationships that'll be lifelong relationships with my shipmates and just taking an immense amount of pride. I have a senior perspective over 38 years You know, just watching, you know, young Coast Guard men and women just doing important things that, you know, generally don't make the headlines, but they make a difference. They make us a better nation, a more secure nation. I would tell you, my advice would be is take a good look at public service because I'm not sure there's anything that's a whole lot more rewarding.
1: That's wonderful, sir. Uh, Admiral, I want to thank you for joining me today and taking time out of your busy schedule. I really appreciate it. But more importantly, sir, I want to thank you for your dedicated service to the country.
0: Yeah, Michael, it's a privilege to serve. I and mean, as I kind of wind down here, you know, I uh, I hope we uh, leave behind a legacy that every day, you know, this leadership team has tried to make a difference building on, you know, the efforts of my predecessors and laying the brickwork and groundwork for our successors. You know, it's sort of a, it's sort of a continuing learning effort in progress. And uh, we come to work every day excited and excited about making sure we're, we're putting forth the Coast Guard that, that can do the bidding for the nation here, both on the home front, the securing of the homeland as part of DHS, and really on a global front, as we get after some, some increasingly complicated threat vectors that are out there.
1: This has been the Business of Government Hour, a conversation with Admiral Carl Schultz, Commandant of the U.S. Coast Guard. Be sure to join us next week for another informative, insightful, and in-depth conversation on improving government leadership and its effectiveness. Until then, subscribe, download, or listen to the entire interview at Podcast One, iTunes, or on your favorite podcast app. And as always at businessofgovernment.org. For the Business of Government Hour, I'm Michael Keegan, and thanks for joining us.
2: How can government best use big data to transform decision-making, public services delivery, and communication? The IBM Center Report Integrating Big Data and Thick Data to Transform Public Services Delivery by Yanyan Ang, presents five recommendations for public managers introducing the concept of mixed analytics, urging thick data, meaning qualitative information about users, to be presented alongside big data to improve government decision making. Visit businessofgovernment.org to read more.
1: WFED Washington, WTOP-FM HD2 Washington, W283DG Sterling, WTLP fm HD2 Braddock Heights Frederick. Federal News Network is the news organization of record for the federal community. We are nonpartisan, nonpolitical, and our job is to help federal government and contracting executives make informed decisions. We inform federal managers, contractors, and policymakers on issues related to the federal workforce, management, and acquisition, pay benefits and retirement, the Defense Department, and federal IT. Portions pre-recorded. Nights and weekends, we air Washington Nationals, Capitals, and Wizards, and the Navy Midshipmen. We are the Washington, D.C. home of Navy athletics. Download the Federal News Network app on the App Store or Google Play Store. Play Federal News Network on Alexa. Check us out on Twitter, Facebook, and LinkedIn. Federal News Network. Our mission is helping you meet your mission.